Okay. Praise God. Feel good, Idris? <laughs> Excellent. Praise God. Well, you know, I felt this service just was a kind of continuation from the uh, Friday night prayer, the half night that we had here. The atmosphere and the, the anointing just seemed to be flowing right through. And also some of the messages that were coming and the prophetic words were a kind of continuation as well. In fact, that, that word about uh, that both Daphne and Kelly gave, and I think it was coming from other places, about the soothing and moisturizing, actually that was a word that came at the end of the half night of prayer after you guys had left. And I felt that the Lord had put into my hand this lovely cream. I don't know if you can get that sort of thing at the body shop or something, but it was so thick that it actually sat up like a little pile on my hand. It didn't sort of run off my hand. It wasn't liquid. It was like a cream. And uh, I, I just felt it was really the soothing anointing that the Lord wanted to give us, a real anointing balm that he wants to put on our hearts. We have dry, crusty places that hurt in, in our hearts. You know how your skin is dry. It cracks and hurts. And God wants to bring that comfort to each and every one of us. So that was lovely that that just continued, that flow of anointing just continued to flow. Here you are. Idris is getting me sorted out. We distracted him with... Uh, words. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. Anyway, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 3. I'll just read it first. And um, in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then went out to him Judea, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance, and do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cast down and thrown into the fire. Cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandal I am not worthy to, un to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. <clears throat> then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, he went up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Lord. We've been looking at the Gospel of Matthew for the last three Sundays now, and we're going to be going through the book. And uh, 
the, the whole uh, sense that I had when I selected this book for us is because it's the beginning of the new covenant and it's the beginning of a transition time for the people of God. They were previously under the old covenant and, uh, and now there was the coming of the Messiah, long promised, thousands of years before the Messiah had been promised and now it's coming into the time of fulfillment. Now obviously we as Christians live in that era already but the whole book of Matthew is helpful for us to learn how to really live in the good of what we are supposed The fleshy life and a bit of religion on the side does not please God. In fact, the Apostle Paul says it cannot, the flesh cannot please God. Just trying to work it all out yourself and doing your own thing, it just cannot please God. And we desire, we earnestly desire, don't we, to get farther into the spirit, deeper into the things of God. To live the reality of the things that have been promised to us. And so we're still really in the introductory sections of Matthew. But here in chapter 3 we come into sort of real time if you like. We're now in Matthew's time. So Matthew was around. The things from the two previous chapters had actually happened about 30 years before. When these guys were babies. When Jesus and John the Baptist were babies. So there's a kind of 30 year gap or so between the end of chapter 2 and, uh, well, it'd be about 28 years, I guess, because it says in Egypt, and then they'd come back and living in Nazareth after Jesus was two or three years old or whatever. So maybe 27 years has passed between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning now of chapter 3. We're kind of in real time in Matthew's time. And things are beginning to happen. And so we had that sense too, didn't we, this morning? And I was thinking as I was preparing this because I've been thinking about Elijah and John the Baptist and these guys for a long time now and you know uh, to try and condense down for one preach what would be a what would be the right word for this morning is obviously quite an exercise in my heart because I would like to tell you all about this and all about that and go down this rabbit trail and that one and some of them are interesting and everything of course but my wife is here today so I have to be good on timing and Verena is just smiling you know so you know I have to be good and careful and, I, and we want to hear what the Lord is saying to us today but I, I really felt that word about you know prayers being answered you know our sense of timing is really a problem for us isn't it See, just what I just said there, you know, oh, the Messiah's coming. So supposing, uh, you know, 30 years ago, take back 30 years, and we're talking about 1985, okay? So some guy had this word back in 85, oh, the Messiah is born today. Oh, you know, so 30 years later, you think, well, that didn't really amount to much, did it? That, nothing happened there. Do you see what I mean? How it is, how easy it is. And that's, that would have been the situation at this point. And then suddenly one day, this guy... You know, if you'd been around in the days of Zechariah, I better tell a little bit of the story about John the Baptist, just so we, we all know. Um, but anyway, this, this thing of time, so we'll, we'll come back to the time. I just want to tell you a little bit about the story. You, most of you may know it already. This old guy and his old wife, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were kind of relatives of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, and they were, uh, I believe, based around in Jerusalem because he worked uh, in the temple. He was a priest. And they had been longing to have a child, as everyone did in the Old Covenant period. That was the thing, to, to be the one who had the child, the, this expected child that was coming. And Abraham and Sarah and all through, you know, Samson's 
parents and all different people, they were thinking, well, maybe it'll be me that can give birth to the Messiah. And, and there was this great desire to participate in the purposes of God that were going on. And they all did participate. So Abraham and Sarah, in their travail to bring forth a child, participated with God's travail in the human race to bring forth the promised Messiah. And so likewise, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And if you actually, it's interesting, if you look at sort of extra-biblical sources, Mary herself was born as a child of promise to very elderly parents. And her, Mary's father, this is, this is legends and stuff surrounding this, and Mary's father had just about given up on this promise they had of a child and had gone off into the desert and an angel met him and so on. I, well, I don't know if those are true stories, but those are, are legends and stories that are extra-biblical. But so this was the kind of atmosphere around at the time anyway of godly people that wanted to give birth to, to, to children. And Zechariah and Elizabeth had had no child. And they were very old. And one day an angel came to Zechariah in the temple and said, you're going to have a baby about this time next year. And he didn't remember, he didn't believe it. And so he was struck dumb, so he couldn't speak until the child was born. You know, so he got a little bit of rebuke. Well, it's easy, isn't it? Perhaps they had a promise when they were just young, 20-year-olds in love or 17, or whatever they got together, 30 or 40 years earlier, God had promised them a child. You know, and they, he had just given up on it. Have you given up on things that God has promised you because of time? What, 30 years to you seems like a lifetime, so you just think God doesn't remember anymore? That's what happens to us, isn't it? That's just human psychology, isn't it? All over, we just think, well, give it a year or two, God says something, give it a year or two, well, it didn't happen, must have got that one wrong. Move on to the next one. Go and get another prophecy. See if that one works. Maybe that prophet's better. <laughs> yeah? Done that? Been there? Oh, bought the t-shirt? Oh, I've done it all. Okay, we've all done it. <laughs> so these guys, Zechariah had done it too. But I don't think Elizabeth had. Elizabeth, she just hung on in there, you know? Like some people just seem to really have that hang on in their faith, don't they? It's really good. I like that. So anyway, they had their baby. They had this beautiful little boy. Uh, and he called him John, as the word was given uh, by the angel, called his name John. So that all happened. All that happened. And now another 30 years has gone by. So if you were like into the prophecy thing, who's prophesying, what, what's going on in the world? You know, I mean, you know, back in the 40s, we found some scrolls that they had hidden in the desert, Isaiah and so on. So the legend is that he was raised by them. They were kind of monastic type of people who lived out in the wilderness. And John the Baptist was raised by them. It says he was in the wilderness until this time of his manifestation. So there he is. All those prophecies had gone. Half the people that were around at the time had died. And then the day comes. You know, and God always fulfills his word. That's the absolute truth. God always fulfills his word. In fact, the whole, that's one of the things we could pick up throughout Matthew. This was to fulfill this. This was to fulfill that. This was to fulfill that. It occurs again and again and again. 14 times it actually uses the word, this was to fulfill in reference to a particular prophecy. And many other times it just uh, doesn't use the word fulfill. 14 times it uses the word fulfill, but here it just says, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So it's saying it is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah coming. Now, What's the significance? Of course, let me just, just so you know who John the Baptist is, let me just finish out the story for him, and then I'll go back to talk about his message and his significance. So he was born this way, in a supernatural way, to old parents. 
He then became this amazing preacher. He was very shortly... Not to worry. That's a really nice phone you have there, Amber. <laughs> Pink phone. <laughs> Not to worry. We all, we all have it happen. My phone is over there. It could ring, you know, but it, it's dying so that the, the ringer is so dull you can't hear it at all anymore, so it saves me from that. So John the Baptist had this amazing and powerful ministry, although he never did any miracles. He never did any miracles. He just had an incredibly anointed uh, preaching gift, a voice that was very, very anointed. He offended Herod over an immorality issue uh, with his brother's wife and so on, and that offended both Herod and his brother's wife, and he got arrested and, of course, was famously asked for his head to be served up on a platter at the dinner party, and so that's how, how his ministry went as far as uh, his life. And um, so he had a kind of short but very dramatic ministry. And, um, and he, uh, he is mentioned a number of times throughout the book of Matthew. And it's very significant uh, mentions and moments. And we have touched on maybe some of them a little bit, but mainly we will get to them when we come to them in the time later on we're looking at, the, at this. What's his message then? And what's his purpose? Well, at the end of um, the Old Covenant period, the last promises that were given by the prophets, chapter chapter 3 of uh, Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, but who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver till they present right offerings to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. And then I will draw near for you, to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers, Adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the orphan, and against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. And then a little bit at at the very end, he's mentioned again in verse 5 of chapter 4. Behold, I send before you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Well, those are a couple of references to what this messenger would be speaking about when he came. But here in this Matthew 3, we're just listed a a tiny little bit. It says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, Matthew is just summarizing. If you look at the other Gospels, there's more detail. It's all about the uneven ground becoming level. It's about justice and righteousness because the mountains are the mountains of power that have been built up by mankind. And the valleys are those valleys of oppression. So if we take in some what is said in, in Malachi and in Isaiah and so on, we understand that the message of John the Baptist was one to begin to address injustices 
and unrighteous issues in society in general. Widest thing. And his message is summed up as well by these words, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So basically what he's saying is, look, this kingdom that you see here in the world, this world's kingdom, everything that goes on in it, is about to come under judgment from God. Okay? And don't worry that 2,000 years has passed and it hasn't fully been judged yet by God. Rest assured, it is under the judgment of God and a declaration has been made against it from heaven. Which are basically military, political, religious, and financial power. That sort of sums up things that John If you look at Luke, John specifically addressed multitudes in connection with each of those powers. Um, I don't think I'll take the time to go into great detail on that now because it's just a bit too much. But I want to just <coughs> say this. If we want to become people who are more and more in the spirit, we need to ask God to open our eyes to where we are really putting our confidence in worldly kingdoms. We need to let him search our hearts. Okay, because it's a bit like this. If God is saying, look, this barn is burning down. Get out of this barn, guys. This barn is on fire. Now, my great-grandfather, he had a barn full of horses in about 1929 or 1931, I think. It was before my time. And he had a fire in his barn. Now, they rushed in there and took all the horses out of the barn to save the horses from the fire. But what happened, you know you've heard that saying, shut the barn door after the horses got away? Well, that's wrong. You've been misinformed about that one. It is a very, very good thing if your barn is on fire to shut the barn door after the horses are out. Because what happens, this is what horses do, or cows will do the same. When they come out of the barn, they see the fire, and they're terrified, and they think, my safest place, my place of safety, is in the barn. Guess what they do? They run into the barn. And that's what my grandfather, great-grandfather's horses all did. They all ran back into the barn and burned to death and died. Yeah, terrible. Tragedy. Great loss. But we as human beings do the same. God has brought us out of the barn. That barn is on fire. But guess what we do? We start buying gold. We start thinking, well, maybe I'll diversify my stocks in case this falls down. Maybe I'll do this. We look for a security in the world. Guys, do not look for a security in the world. This barn is burning down. Put your hope and your trust in the Lord. You know, the first thing about being in the spirit it's a change of mindset. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the flesh is death. Right. So, you know, what if, you know, people get away with it for a while? That's the trouble, you see. People get away with it. And that, that's there in Matthew. We had time to analyze the Malachi passage. You know, well, you know, God is so slow, but doesn't, it's not happening quick enough. I can get away with it for a while and so on. But... It's not the thing to do. You know, God is saying, put your heart in my kingdom. 
No, don't, we don't need to get caught up. But the good thing about this is, you know, we don't need to get caught up in worldly arguments about stuff. Because both, you know, both sides of most of the world's arguments are actually both wrong in some measure. Okay? Now, I'm not saying God hasn't acted into the world with salt in hundreds of different ways, and the Christians haven't had a good influence in the world, and things are better than they would have been. Okay? I'm not saying that. He has, and he has called his people to be an influence for positive things in the world. But it's about where our ultimate confidence is, where our real heart lies, what I'm talking about. So I'm not saying quit your job tomorrow and go and live in, like the Qumran society in the deserts of Judea or something. I'm not actually saying that. That's, this is why this kind of message gets a bit complex and people get then confused. Because we are meant to be salt and light. We are meant to be helping in the world. But our confidence is we're helping from another kingdom. Yes. Let me just illustrate what I'm saying here by talking about the political thing. Now, we have very interesting political stuff happening in England right now, don't we? Yeah. We've had, you know, just when we thought, you know, red is dead and, you know, the old gloomy <laughs> left have gone for good and whatever. Whoa, there they are. yippee ki <laughs> And left and right wing politics is a big part of the Western world dynamic, isn't it? Arguing about maybe this would be the way to solve things and that would be the way to solve things. You know, and God has had a lot of influence into political things over the years. You know, sometimes when people think that that loony left sort of thing came out of uh, Marxism, but it did not come out of Marxism. You know where, I, where that came out? What we would call basic liberal uh, kind of the. Uh, merciful attitude toward the poor and so on, that came from the Salvation Army and the Methodists. That did not come from Karl Marx. Karl Marx was a backslidden Christian who got his wires crossed and a bit demonized and became a terrible influence in the world. Now, I'm not, see, I'm not, I am not saying left-wing politics is right, but I'm saying there has been an influence nevertheless and some of it is, if you look at what John the Baptist preached, he, he preached things like, look, he who has two coats, share with him who has none. Yeah. And who doesn't have any food, do likewise. Yeah. That was their interpretation of an application of John the Baptist's message. Now, John the Baptist wasn't a revolutionary, though. He wasn't like, let's go and overthrow Rome, let's kill all the rich and take all their stuff and distribute it. He, he wasn't actually that. But in the meantime, when we're salt and light, we still begin to live. And the way that we pull down mountains and lift up valleys. We live in a godly way in an unjust world, but we're not becoming just politicians and that's our kingdom. We're just recognizing that we're coming from a different kingdom influencing, influencing into this one. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Like if we're, like the, we've been in uh, connections in America where they would be extremely the other way, they'd be extremely right wing in their political, and they, they see that as God because they're looking at issues like sexual morality and so on. For some reason, uh, that uh, left-wing agenda, which may have uh, come from a godly influence, also seemed to get corrupted with an awful lot of sexual stuff. But in John the Baptist's time, it was actually Herod, the sort of debauched uh, aristocrat, who was the one who was immoral. And actually, John the Baptist got killed for addressing him and his problems. So it's a complicated thing if you've got this interface with the world. And it's easy for people to get deceived and thinking, okay, well, that's my home. I'm going to take my stake on left-wing politics, or I'm going to take my stake on right-wing politics. But I'm saying to you, both of those is wrong. 
do what God gives you to do. Be free to be left or right if it's appropriate. Say, <laughs> in the Holy Spirit. Be free to be salt and light in the world. But don't put your home in those things. Because they're all, at best, they're temporary things that God has put up with and he's adjusting and he's moving and acting in. Same way with money. We need to act righteously and justly. But God is bringing down the high places and he's just, he's, he's rebuking the high places. And that's happening right now. It's really been happening a lot in the last five, ten years, isn't it? You know, the biggest financial institutions and, and corporations are <coughs> shaking really from various things that are happening. And I believe it's all part of the shaking. God begins to shake the heavens and the earth. And it's part of what's happening in our times. And we are called, as Christians, actually to be John the Baptist. Jesus said the least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. That's what he said. We are called to have a message like John the Baptist had. Amen. We speak into all the areas of power in this world and speak the word of God into them and bring his heart into them and but recognizing that they're, they are going to fail. In the end, they are all going to fail because they are not uh, eternal. They are not the kind of thing that God can actually work with in the end, because look what happens when any of them actually get in power, like let's be honest, right when people are totally in power, or left when people are totally in power, or rich people are totally in power, or if you just found some poor people and put them in power, do you think the world would become a lovely place? No, they each have their own agendas. I mean, Mao Zedong was a poor man who got in power, guess what he did? Because he felt bullied by, you know, smart kids in school, he killed every smart kid and person he ever knew in this whole country. That's what happens. You cannot solve worldly problems with politics and manipulations of money. But it may be the right thing to do on the short term. Okay, so John the Baptist did preach a message that, you know, sounds great to the left, but he offended the right. He got, you know, he just he cut across it all. And he particularly cut across the religious. And I'm I want to just um, look at what he said there to the Pharisees. So he was, he had this, he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness, bring down the mountains, he's speaking out for social justice, he's speaking out for righteousness at every level. But then a bunch of Pharisees, because he was so popular, there was an anointing on his voice. I think he was, he was a kind of, uh, like a Billy Graham kind of voice he must have had. You know Billy Graham's voice, how anointed that, that is, if you hear him preach? And large, large crowds were drawn here, he never did any miracles, as far as we know. To say, it says John, he didn't do miracles and signs so much, but his voice had an anointing on it. So John drew large crowds. And whenever there's large crowds, the kind of in guys, the Pharisees, they thought, we better get in on this, something's going on here, power is moving, we better get over there, because we're the guys in power. So they were drawn for the wrong reasons to John, just because, oh, this is the latest in thing, let's get going on that. And... Um, so here's what John said to them, and I want to apply this to us as well. He says, who, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. They are fit fruit that befits repentance. And don't presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up stones uh, from these stones children for Abraham. God is calling us to a repentance and into a personal relationship with him. And most of us here probably know that already, and we've already experienced that. But we do need, to, if we're going to live in the Spirit, we need a constant reminding that this is actually a life in the Spirit, in relationship to Jesus. 
these guys were saying, well, we're sons of Abraham. We have this kind of position, this status. And it's easy for us to think, well, we're, we're Christians. We're in a nice Western country here. We're a reasonable country. And just to kind of go with the flow. But God is looking for something deeper. He's looking for an actual heart-to-heart commitment and relationship from us that causes us to change our lifestyle and to be different. And the Pharisees came under that rebuke. And God is calling us into uh, friendship with him. And we've talked about some of that, that steadfast love, that we care, that we're, we're engaged with the Spirit in what we're doing. And uh, so that was the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And really, he's saying to them, you guys are actually children of the serpent, and your tree is about to get chopped down. So you got early Genesis motifs there um, saying this is, this kingdom is about to get chopped down, and you're actually part of that kingdom. If you're just religious, if we're just religious, and don't really know God, we're actually part of the world's kingdom. Because religion is one of the powers of the world. That's the thing. And it's always a, it's always a warning to us to be genuine in our hearts, to be honest, yes. and to repent. And, uh, and that's, you know, the call. We have to have a repentant heart before the Lord. Because he is uh, calling us into a deeper place with him, and I believe he is calling us as individuals and as a church into a deeper place with him. And it's very much on my heart, and it's on many of our hearts, that we explore that more deeply, that we're more quick to repent, we're more quick to let ourselves be corrected and adjusted when we need to be, and to, to be more open to his Holy Spirit, to let his love be in our hearts. Um, uh, it was, you know, the Pharisees had been the last generation's good guys. They were sons of, of Zadok and uh, priests that were loyal to David, and they were the they were the good guys. But within a few hundred years, they had gradually become just a kind of religious establishment that was actually part of the world's kingdom, part of the kingdom that was condemned and written off. So we must be careful to hear what the Lord is saying to us on that, and be coming out of those things. But I suppose the greatest thing, so all of John's preaching, which is part of our mandate as a prophetic people, the same kind of message we, we carry, and uh, especially as these, these times come to uh, fruition, which I believe that we're coming into the end times, and De Devil mentioned the blood moons that is actually tonight. It is actually a, which is a, as Jesus said, there's signs in the heavens, signs on the earth, didn't it? be stars and the moon and so on. There will be signs as the end times come. Now, obviously there has to be blood moons, the red moons that happens when there's an eclipse of the moon, and, and when it's a full moon, and when it's like tonight where it's at, the moon is at the closest point to the earth, it's uh, the most sort of rare, but the most significant one, it is believed to be prophetically the most significant time. Uh, but of course, with these things, and I do think it is a sign, this one, you know, this one is uh, quite unique. I mean, some preachers and prophets are, are really making a lot of this, really saying it's a very, very significant marker of a change of era. And uh, there's only been, um, there's been quite a few blood moons of various kinds, but of this particular sequence of four moons and, a, and the sun dark in between, which is the eclipse of the sun that happened in between, that has only happened seven times before since the birth of Christ. 
only seven times before. And, uh, and this is the eighth time. So, well, I mean, the Bible does, it does mention these moons a couple of times, but it doesn't actually say, you know, it doesn't give us the kind of information that astronomers might like to have, or, you know, politicians might like to have. So we just, we just need to be in the spirit. Uh, but I, um, I feel there's a lot of weight on this, but I'm, uh, in, in Revelation 6, we're talking about the sixth seal, the signs in the heavens, and he opened the sixth seal, and I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. When shaken by the gale, the sky vanished like a scroll is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the great men, and the generals and the rich and the strong, everyone slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks, the mountains, calling the mountains, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand before it? Of course, John the Baptist was warning about the wrath of God that is to come. There is a time of judgment. The world does come under judgment. I know Billy Graham used to say, if God doesn't soon judge America, I didn't have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, he used to say that all the time. Because he saw things happening. But you know, God is patient. And even a warning like that, if 30 years pass, we think, oh, well, that didn't happen. No, we shouldn't think that way. You know, God, I was, I was thinking about that. It really struck me from Revelation there. The wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God, we have to the wrath of God, but the wrath of the Lamb, I'm thinking, Lord, what would make the Lamb, what would, what would make, cause the wrath of the Lamb to have wrath? What do you think? Baby. I think so. It never says baby. I think some of the things that happen, you know, Jesus himself warned, didn't he, against those who cause little ones to stumble. That seemed to be his most severe warning, didn't it? It'd be better for that person to have a millstone and be chucked into the seas. It would just really be better if they had never existed. And yet, you know, things like abortion, with teachings that are forced, to, even in schools, even in Western countries, and so on. So severe, uh, causing little ones to stumble. And, uh, you know, um, there is great wrath coming. Mm. There really is. And I, we don't often give this message. We, we like to give a message, you know, mm. Jesus is just gracious and loving and kind all the time, which he is. Amen. But when someone who is like that, yeah. who is loud, <laughs> Is angry, you know that people have crossed the line, yeah. you know, yes. which they really ought never to have crossed. Yeah. And our the trouble is, people are even flippant and glib about it and, yeah. and dismissive of it as if they can get away. And the fact that God lets them get away with it for a time and become even more strident and arrogant about it. So, I do believe there are severe uh, judgments coming, but. You know, when God calls us to repentance, it's by his kindness. I think when those days come, it's like the door closing and there's no more time. But now there's still time. Yeah. There's still time. God, by his kindness. And when, 
When Zechariah, who was the father of John the Baptist, was prophesying about his coming, here's what he said in Luke. Um, and you, child, shall be called a prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his way and give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins through the tender mercy of God. When the day shall dawn upon us from on high, and to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So somehow in the midst of great wrath, there is also incredible kindness and mercy. Isn't there? So we, we live in this contradictory thing. On the one hand, we're being salt in a kingdom that we know is falling apart. On the other hand, we're speaking mercy to people who are under wrath and judgment. And believe me, many people I believe in our society already are feeling and maybe that's why there's so much oppression and depression and trouble. It's because people are already feeling the terrible weight of guilt and of the shame. Who can stand before the truth? Who can stand before the truth? This truth is beginning to be revealed. And, and yet, we have to carry that mercy in our heart. We live in this contradictory moment. We're in this John the Baptist calling. There's this contradictory moments, isn't there, where we live in the midst of wrath and mercy, and uh, have a message of kindness. So sometimes we think of John the Baptist as just this really wild, hairy guy that was just shouting angrily at everyone. And some of the movies sort of portray him that way. <laughs> I don't think he was like that. I think he was a broken-hearted guy, yeah. warning people and yeah. dealing as severely as he needed to with those that, like the Pharisees that were just faking it and just glossing over. You know, they were in league, really, with the Romans, and they were just after their own power. You know, they're religious people on the earth like that today, isn't it? And we guard our own hearts, like I said, but those are the ones that really maybe come out in need of most severe rebuke. What can you do with it? I don't know. But anyway, just to learn that, to learn to walk in the spirit at this time, this is the exercise of my heart, and I know it's all of our desire, isn't it? To walk in the spirit, to know how should we, what should we do then? When things are shaking, when things are happening, well, dish out the mercy of God. Warn people, but dish out the mercy of God. And, um, of course, um, I'll just finish uh, with this. I feel like I, well, hopefully we'll just introduce John the Baptist in some of this scene. But here's a great promise that he gives. He said, I am baptizing the water for repentance, but after me comes this one. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now that's something to ask God for right there, isn't it? Let us be baptized. Because Jesus has come to baptize the Holy Spirit and fire. And we are baptized with the fire of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to fear the wrath of God. We've already walked through it. You know the wrath of God, or the fire of God, is actually his love. You know that? It's not like hatred and angry. God hates and he's angry at those people and he burns them. It's that he opens his heart to them and his love begins to burn up evil. And if people align themselves and cling to evil, they will go down with it. That's basically what it amounts to. It says, that's why it says in Malachi, who can... Is that what it says in face? Um... One of the verses that's similar to that where it says, who can endure his face, turning his face toward 
away from the world, it's because he wants to spare them. He doesn't reveal his love and fullness. You know that? He doesn't say, oh, turn my back on you, then you'd be no cheek, so I'm going to just ignore you. It's more like his face, in his face is his love. In his face, you know, if evil people behold his face, it consumes them and burns them up. And his love is so great. And uh, I, years ago now, I had a dream one night. And in this dream, I could see God's back. But I could sort of see around the corner so I could see what his face was like. But I, I wasn't seeing his face, but I was aware of what it was like. I could sort of look around. It was revealed to me in the spirit. And there was great anger in his face at evil. But it really is just his love. It's one with his love. Anger against evil is just love, isn't it? Because Evil is basically, by definition, that which is contrary to love. So, when God turns a loving face towards the world, to those that don't want his love and who have rejected it and have chosen evil, it is a consuming fire. It is a consuming fire. And I knew that God was about to turn his face. In the dream, I knew God was about to turn his face toward the world. And we ask for that. Yet, let us be baptized with his fire. First, this is the mercy. This is why he sends John the Baptist to go out before. Like, and we have that message, don't we? Because God is about, these are kind of like foreshadowing of the final consummation of it all. God begins to turn his face toward us. And, and his love, the full weight of his passionate love for us. And uh, to those that choose him, accepted him, then it's, it's uh, beautiful. But to those that have chosen evil. And so when God seems to ignore evil in the world and let people get away with stuff, it's only because he loves them. And only in his kindness and his mercy, he's giving the time where he can speak a message that's not quite as the intense fullness of his love. It's just a, a witness to his love. So the baptism of the fire and the Holy Spirit let me just, in the last verse of this chapter, let me just finish with this. I put uh, some uh, those out, but let me just finish with this. This is the Father's voice speaking out over Jesus after he's baptized, and that's how the verse, the chapter finishes. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And each one of us is invited to step into Christ. Aren't we? we are invited to step in. We are in Christ. We're a new creation, aren't we? And guess what's being in Christ? It's to be living in that point there where the Father is saying, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter, with whom I'm well pleased. Another picture is that he's given us his robe. So when the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus. Isn't, he? Isn't that beautiful? And that's where we, we need to stand. That's where we're invited to stand. Everyone, if you don't feel... You're scared by the wrath coming. And you need to come into that place where you're standing. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved daughter right here. This is my beloved daughter. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. In whom I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased with her. She's covered with the righteousness of Jesus. 
only place to be in these times, these times, in any time, in all times. That's the only place to be because it's the only place that human psychology and our being could finally be who we're meant to be, pleasing to God, a delight to Him. And, uh, well, praise God. Father, I just thank you for your great love, Lord. We, we know we're in unusual times, Lord, in this season. And it, but in a way, it's always been the same, Lord. Since these days, Lord, this is a season of grace and mercy. And uh, Father, I just pray that you prepare each and every one of our hearts. And help us to put our hearts fully and totally in you. Take our confidence out of all that is in the world and put our hearts more and more deeply into you, Lord, so that we can be useful to the world as well and solve life, Lord, but also mostly so we can show your love and draw people into your love and into that place repentance where they can know your favor and your approval uh, that Jesus wants to clothe them with. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You may have been a Christian for a long time, or you may be exploring the possibilities of a relationship with God. Wherever you are in your journey of life, please feel free to contact us at Woolwich Community Church if you would like any further information on today's message. We will be happy to talk with you, pray with you, and help you in any way we can. Please see the information below in our bio on how to get in touch with us. Have a blessed week. And God bless.